If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be going through verses 7 through 11. We're in week, uh, week 13. I think we're in week 13. I don't, I don't remember what week we're in here for 1 Peter. I think it's week 13. We're going to be taking this all the way up until uh, Christmas Sunday. So the passage today is 1 Peter 4, verse 11. So in four weeks, we are all going to own more stuff. You're like, that's one way of looking at it, Ronnie. I mean, that's, that's, that's a real cheery holiday greeting. We appreciate that. But, you know, I was thinking about this week as I was looking into this passage that is really going to be talking about stewardship, is that ownership is kind of a rite of passage for Americans, isn't it? Like we talk about that like it's something that we, we have coming to us and that we're anticipating, that we're building towards. I mean, as kids, like we dream of the day when we, you know, we can own something, right? We can own a car. We can own a house. And, you know, since it's Ohio, we can own a gun, you know. Um, it's like, like it's, you know, have you ever seen those Chevy truck commercials? You know, you got like the big like lumberjack dude in the truck and, you know, he, he, he looks like he wants to hurt you because he knows you drive a Hyundai, you know, but he's, he's trying to sell you that big, you know, Chevy. Well, Chevy doesn't really want you to be afraid of the guy driving the truck, which I think if they felt that way, they'd put a little more of a, a kinder-faced, uh, less, you know, bounty man in there from behind the driving, uh, behind the wheel. But, um, but they don't really want you to be afraid. Chevy wants you to invest in what's called pride of ownership, right? They want you to want that automobile. And so for the church, what's interesting about ownership for us is that ownership's not really an incredibly uh, biblical concept. And by not incredibly, I mean it's not at all. It's not a biblical concept. It's actually kind of a cautionary word for us. Um, so the other day, I was, uh, I was with my wife. We were pulling out of Gulf Gas Station in Worcester, Ohio. Maybe you've heard of that town. It's your rival town. We actually have another congregation out there. But what happened was I, uh, I hopped onto Route 30 to head home, and right as I pulled uh, onto the Ashland off-ramp, um, I realized that I had, I had left my phone on top of my car back at uh, the gas station. Um, now, man, I'm telling you guys, I mean, listen, I, I mean, the phone is pretty new, and I've been having a hard time with this phone, okay? Um, I've already dropped it like eight times, I've already cracked the screen, I like literally kicked it across the room one time. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, all first world problems, let's be honest, but uh, by the t- I mean, literally, by the time I left it on top of my Hyundai, I mean, I-, I was like, why not? I mean, the only thing I haven't done is lost this thing yet, right? So it was just kind of par for the course. So now I'm good, right? But here's the thing. I am blessed, uh, like many of you guys, to have a phone for me in my line of work. Uh, it's a tool that's pretty indispensable. It helps me navigate life uh, in the 21st century. But I, I don't really value it for the blessing that it really is, right? Hence my loosely just setting it on top of the car and saying, all right, let's go. You know, I'm sure it'll still be there when we get back to Ashland. The phone is not something I value. It's not really something I steward. It was really just something that I, I owned. But what's interesting for us and for our purposes this morning, as we dive into this passage, is that the Bible doesn't really teach ownership. It actually teaches stewardship, which is different. It's using the gifts God's given us for His glory and for the good of others. So here's the sobering truth for us this morning. Nothing is yours except for the grace from which God has given you your gifts. That's yours this morning. Grace is yours. The gifts are the extension of the grace that God has given you. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try to get a biblical framework for this thing called stewardship and begin to see that defined by by Peter, as we're going to see, 
it's not about us. It's about God. And it's about the grace He's given to the church in rich supply through the gifts that He's given us to serve others. So the question for us as we dive in is, well, how do we, how do we steward God's grace then? If everything He's given us is His, that He's given us via the extension of His grace, how do we steward that? I mean, what the heck? What do we do with that? Well, three ways. Number one, we keep a hopeful expectancy. Two, we practice a lifestyle of serving others. And three, we become glory-minded in all things. All right? And we're going to look at those three elements as we dive in here to verse 7. So follow along with me. Chapter 4, verse 7. Peter is speaking. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we can all say amen to that. So let's just dive right in here to verse 7. What is Peter getting at here with that apocalyptic, the end of all things is here uh, line? Well, what he's basically saying is this, is live in expectancy for the return of Christ which can happen at any time. So there is this thing where even back in the New Testament church, there was an expectant hope for the coming of Christ. And at this point in time, Peter knew that the entire succession of redemptive history, and by redemptive history, we mean everything that God had planned from the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned all the way through to when he sent his son to die. Peter knew that this succession of redemptive history had been completed had all been completed except for the grand finale of Christ's return. And we actually still live in this time. It's actually what's commonly called the already but not yet. It's sort of this time in between the times, the time between Christ's death and resurrection and the time for when he will return. So Peter is saying, look, since the return of the Lord is always imminent, be sane and controlled so that your prayer life can remain steady. Remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he called the church to pray without ceasing. And remember James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, he said, you also, he said, be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what we do is we, we, see, this, we see this urgency for our prayers to remain steady and ceaseless and very focused on what might be the coming of the Lord, but in between that time that we stay focused on His grace, the grace that He has showered to us and through us through Christ. And you wonder if Peter had the night before Christ's death in mind when he wrote this. You remember when Jesus instructed Peter and disciples, remember what he said? He said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So prayer is how we stay mindful that God is still in control by keeping our heads clear of distractions and our heart guarded against 
temptations. So that's what Peter is saying. Be mindful of the times that you're living in so that your prayer life might not be hindered. Prayer is how we experience the living hope of Christ that we've been born into as forgiven sinners, as we learned in the first chapter of 1 Peter. Now, it's worth noting that the church hasn't always been incredibly self-controlled and sober-minded when it comes to the end of all things. Okay, so if you were like me, and you grew up a little bit in the 70s and the 80s, you were, you know, subjected to a lot of uh, rapture movies, okay? And uh, so I remember being nine years old watching horribly made movies. Yeah, some of you laugh because you know what I'm talking about. Horribly made movies about the coming of Christ that, one, had very little Christ in them, by the way, and two, had a lot of bad acting, atrocious special effects, and even worse, exegesis, which is just a fancy word for correct interpretation of Scripture. They were just lacking a few things, right? So listen, because Peter says this, what we want to understand is that our aim, our aim is he's telling us to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. Our aim is to not spend our days trying to figure out the day or the hour of Christ's return, but to redeem the days and hours until his return by stewarding the grace he's given us with hopeful expectation, with hopeful anticipation. I mean, let's not forget what the angels told the disciples when Christ ascended to heaven after his resurrection in Acts. The angels come, they see the men staring up in the clouds, watching Jesus as he already passed up into the heavens, which was his ascension to go be at the right hand of the Father. And they say this, they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Right? I mean, is that what you want an angel to, to be saying to you, right? And they say, this Jesus, who is taking up from you in heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, right? I mean, I hope my brother is not listening to this message, but if you are a brother, you know I love you. But like every family has that member that just sort of stands around while all the work's being done, you know? And this was, I won't say which one, I have a couple of brothers. This was one of my brothers, okay? And I just think he didn't know what to do because me and my dad were always just getting the job done and he didn't really know what to do. But I remember my dad would repeatedly say this. He would say it to me too. Why are you standing there when there's work to be done? Like, why are you standing there? And that's the call for us as believers. Acts 1-7 reminds us, it says, it is not for you. And by you it means me and it means us. It is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority in terms of when he decides is the right time for the return of Christ. So it's because we know Jesus will return the way he ascended to heaven, listen, that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus rather than the heavens, okay? Church has not always been real good at following those very simple instructions. So keep a hopeful expectancy for Christ's return by remaining prayerful. And that's what helps keep that hope alive in us and keeps us having a proper weight of expectancy and anticipation with the idea and the truth that this is not our home. So keep a hopeful expectancy too. Practice a lifestyle of serving others. When you get into verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly is what he says. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, what Peter is saying is with this hopeful expectancy, how you live, how you practice this in your life is first off, you need to love one another earnestly or deeply. Love your people 
deeply. Again, man, this is not everybody holding hands, rallying together for world peace while listening to John Lennon songs, right? That's not what Peter is, is driving at here. This is a love reflective of the love of Christ that brought us near to God. Remember how we read in chapter 3, verse 18? I mean, this is a love, what Peter's advocating for here is a love with guts. This is a love with guts, not phony, not flowery tolerance, which is somehow the ways that we define and communicate love. But this is a focused love soaked with heart-giving intentionality, as we'll see. I mean, have you ever been in a church that kind of looks like an episode of Real Housewives? Man, where there is, just, like, everybody is just kind of banging heads, and everybody's in disagreement, and there's gossips, and there's whisperings, and everybody doesn't seem focused and on the same page. Well, there is not a deep love that is being demonstrated in those kinds of places. Peter says, above all else, above all else, love your brothers and sisters in such a way that overlooks both petty and even profound offenses, which is how we would interpret covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10 tells us, hatred stirs up strife. So we like to think when we're not loving, then we can't possibly be hating. But really, the opposite of love is hate and fear. So when we are not loving one another, that is what we're doing. Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So we must love in such a way that offenses become occasions for showing that our love for Christ is real. You guys feel me on that? When that happens, we'll be able to do some of the things that Peter lays out for us right here. The first one being hospitality. He mentions hospitality. He says right here, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. For those of us who wish Scripture would be a little clearer, there it is. It's, it's right there. What, what is this hospitality that you speak of, Ronnie? Well, it's having an invitational heart toward others. I like that definition. It's having an invitational heart toward... I made up that definition. I should just say that. I like it because I made it up. Here's my question to you when we talk about hospitality is, do you let people invade your space? Do you let people invade your space and your privacy? Some of you guys are looking down right now. I'm not looking at you in the eye. Sorry, I just caught Chandler's eye right there. But do you let people invade your space and your privacy? Listen, do you let people enjoy the gifts God has provided you? Do you let people eat of the bounty of food that God has blessed you with? I'm not just talking about what happened four days ago. Do you, receive, do you let people receive the warmth and the kindness that Christ showed you when he invaded your heart with his salvation? See, hospitality is introducing the public to how God has blessed you personally. And wait for it, it's not given as an option for God's people. Oh, I mean, that's kind of groany for some of us, isn't it? But let me just say this, we value it highly here. We value it so highly here that we model it on Sundays and Wednesdays. Believe it or not, the reason why we do a brunch every Sunday is not because we're worried that you guys might be malnourished coming into the church on Sunday. That's not really the primary concern that we have. We don't want any of you to be malnourished. Don't hear me like that. But that's not the primary reason we do it. We want to model what it looks like to open your doors and to invite people in to your lives, to invite others to come share with what God is sharing with you. 
But here's what we kind of get, tend to get hung up on when we think about hospitality. And I think this is what prevents us most of the time is that we confuse hospitality with entertaining. All right? Noted wife and mother, Melissa Martin, said this regarding hospitality. You guys know her. She said, entertaining is about showing off what you own. Hospitality is sharing what you've been given. I mean, that just sums it up right there. So what happens is with entertaining is it leads to burden. Hospitality on their other hand leads to blessing others. One is steeped in the pride of ownership. This is what I got. I have to prepare to show you who I am and what I value. And if it's not good enough, the doors are going to remain closed. The other one flows from the humility of grace, which says things don't have to be perfect. My house doesn't have to be perfect. I just have to open my doors, open up my life for you to come in and share whatever it is that God has given me. And what Peter does here is he warns against grumbling. He warns against grumbling because we can listen to this and say, fine, come over, eat all my food, steal all my privacy, just do it, right? So I can get this burden off of my back. But true hospitality is simply sharing what you've been given out of a deep love that was first shown and first given to you by Christ. Listen, so that you might be broken enough to give it to others. So this is what's hard about hospitality. Hospitality is brokenness. It's brokenness. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, in the last days, people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Do we think that doesn't infiltrate us? Do we think that doesn't infiltrate the church? Well, it, it does. But what hospitality does is it's, it's rebelling. It's rebelling against that status quo by being a lover of God and lowering yourself to the one who loved you by giving himself to you. So a deep love for others, it leads to, to showing hospitality. And it's rooted out of the love that God gave to us in Christ. And so Peter mentions hospitality, and then he mentions gifts right here. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter's like this. He's like saying, you all have gifts. Saying, all of you have gifts. Nobody can say that they haven't been given a gift, right? You also don't get to ignore the gift because it's not the same gift as the person next to you who has what you would consider a more uh, valuable gift, right? And so here's what's interesting. It's prideful to think, you know, kind of like Eeyore from the Hundred Acre Woods, right? That like, uh, you know, I'm nothing special. I don't have anything to contribute. But Peter like refutes that. Peter refutes Eeyore. He says, that was funny. I didn't have that written down. He says, Peter says, look, he says, each has received a gift. Like, he just calls it. He says, all of you have received a gift. He says, use it to serve one another. So, listen, received means that everything you have is a result of grace. So, to not steward what God has gifted you is, in reality, making a statement about your opinion of the giver and what he's given you to Stuart. So that's what we're doing when we have been given gifts 
that can be for the good of our brothers and sisters, that can be the good for our community, that can be for the good of our neighbors, but we withhold those gifts for all kinds of varying reasons. Peter doesn't give us varying reasons. He said there's varying graces that God gives, and they're enough to cover every person in every congregation in the entire world. 1 Corinthians 4 says, this is Paul talking to the church, and he says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So this can go a bunch of different ways. At the end of the day, what it means is that all gifts are, are given. All gifts are given or they would not be gifts and Peter wouldn't be instructing them to be stewarded. All right? So listen. Don't feel condemned when you hear this, when you get the message from the preacher who's up there saying, use your gifts, gosh darn it, and getting all angry about it. Don't feel condemned when you hear this. Instead, pray how you might benefit the church body today. Using your gifts to serve one another is one of the ways God illuminates his grace to your brothers and sisters. How do you experience grace? Well, most of the time, I experience it when one of you uses the gift that God has given you to bestow his grace in your stewarding upon me. So that's the way we experience grace. So somebody here will better know the way, that, will better know the grace of God when you serve them with grace God has given you. That's how it works. That's how the church body works. And that should actually change how all of you think about what it is that you've been given to steward. And you know what? Let me just say this. Peter was talking to shy people here, right? Like this included everybody. This included people that are going to have a little bit of a harder time to be hospitable than big, brash, loudmouths like yours truly, all right? So we think that's reserved for people that are just a little more, you know, they can come out of themselves, they laugh a little bit more, they think they're really funny, um, and those kind of people. But Peter was talking to all people in this. He was taking all different kinds of personalities in mind when he wrote this. He knew that, he knew the church was comprised of people that would struggle in all of these different areas. That's why there are varied graces, even to show hospitality and even to serve, so what are these gifts exactly? Let's break this down a little bit. Peter gives us two specific examples. The first one he said is speaking. He says those who speak the oracles, another word for oracle is, or is a say, like the sayings of God, the oracles of God. So what this can be is this can be a preacher. For our intents and purposes here at the church, it can be a preacher. It can be a, a gospel project teacher uh, for our kids. It can be a community group leader. It can be a women teacher. It can be some of you guys that want to get together with other men and women and lead through Bible studies. It can be all of those who have been gifted with the ability to preach and teach and need to preach and teach as a way to serve and equip the saints with God's Word. Some of you guys have been gifted that way. We need to find ways for you to use that gift, and there are varying ways that you can speak the oracles of God as a way to uh, encourage and as a way to grow others, help grow others in the knowledge and grace of God. So he talks about speaking, and then he just talks about general serving, which can really just apply to almost anything within and without the church. All the different ways that there are to serve from your gifting. That can be, again, that can be teaching, it can be singing, it can be playing an instrument, it can be cleaning, it can be building, it can be creating, it can be cooking, 
organizing. You know what else it can be besides all these like hands-on, tasky things that I'm talking about? It can also be things like encouraging. It can also be things like praying and meeting with people and helping other people and visiting and caring for those in need. There is not one thing that I have mentioned in either of these lists that doesn't encompass everybody in this room. We all have one. Some of us have many of those gifts. Some of us maybe have one of those gifts that would be of such good use to another brother and sister in Christ. You know, some of you have served me personally uh, with your gift of encouragement. Um, man, I really felt the weight, the beautiful weight of that in October when you guys uh, gave us all these cards. It was Pastor Appreciation Month. Again, I told you I didn't create that holiday, but you guys gave us all those cards. And man, it was such a massive encouragement. Some of you do that occasionally. You'll, you'll have a word of encouragement, and it greatly blesses me. It means a lot. I take it with me. It's a gift that you've been given that you share with me, and it blesses me, and it benefits me. And at the end of the day, the biggest gift that we're ultimately giving to everybody, as my wife reminded me of this week, is time and space. That's really what we're offering, and that's why it's a sacrifice. We're offering each other time and space. But what we have to remember in all of this, as we start, as our heads start turning and we start feeling this condemnation because, oh, I'm not serving enough and I got to serve and I'm hearing what the pastor's saying and, you know, now I feel like I got to go rearrange like everything in my life because I'm not serving, dang it. We have to remember something about these gifts in that before these are gifts, these are graces. They're graces, which means they've been freely given to you by God to steward. So they're graces given to you by a gracious God who is going to help you as you seek to obey him to the benefit of your brothers and sisters. They've been given to you to give to others. And then he adds here that serving must be done under the supply of God's strength. And the reason why that's important, it's because we need to, we need to be able to prevent bitterness or pride from becoming our supplier, right? So this is important because, man, I'm telling you, we are not great at knowing our limitations. And by not knowing our limitations, what's going to happen in serving is it's going to sap the joy from our serving. So serving under the supply of God's strength means that we serve with humility. It doesn't mean serving won't be a sacrifice, but that sacrifice should fall within the parameters of humility so that the focus doesn't fall on you. Serving is not about you. It's not about me. All of this falls under stewardship, which again is using God's gifts for God's glory and the good of others. So Peter is saying, keep a hopeful expectancy. The end of all things is near. Practice a lifestyle of serving others. And finally, he says in verse 11b here at the end, he says, be glory-minded in all things. He says, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The question is, who are we really serving when we serve? Right? Why do anything? Seriously, why do anything? It's, ask the question. Like, why do anything? Do you ever feel that way? I mean, I do. Peter anchors our motivations by saying, do everything in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And what this does is it brings us to the word glory. 
All right? It brings us to the word glory that we throw around a lot here at Substance. So glory is a word that in the Old Testament means weightiness, not, not physically, or else there, there's, there'd be a lot of glory in here today after Thanksgiving if it meant physical weightiness, right? Um, but it, it's in terms of importance and dignity. That's what glory is. So like, you know, sometimes you'll finish a book and you'll tell a friend about it, uh, or you'll watch a movie and you'll describe it as being heavy or just kind of deep or kind of weighty. And what you're saying is that there's a sense of importance or a sense of transcendence to it. But on the flip, you know, when you describe something silly or funny, you describe it, oh, it's like light. It's a, it's a light comedy. So what makes God glorious is the weight of who he is. It's the weight of his existence. It's the weight of his identity. He is eternally self Existent. He is not dependent on anything or anyone else. R.C. Sproul describes God's glory by saying this, He is the only being who has the power of being in himself and the one from whom all other things derive. Yeah, I don't even know if I know what he just talked about right there. But here's what Paul describes it as in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Oh, you mean you're, we're all here for a reason? Like you're, everything who you are and where you are and what you're doing has all been allotted by God? Well, that's what it says. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You know that old song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Gosh, I hated that song. But, you know, like the, you know it was like that Coca-Cola commercial or something. They, they, they sort of took it and they stole it. But, so it always reminds me of a Coke at Christmas. But it's, it's, it's true. God literally has every molecule in his hands. That's the glory of God. This is the weightiness. This is the otherness. This is the transcendent glory of God. There is none like him. No one else who is all-knowing. No one else who is all-powerful. No one else who is all present. No one else who is never changing. It's by this glory, this transcendence, this unlikeness of which everyone and everything has become and everyone and in everything. This is why the angels in heaven, it says, sing to him with never-ending, never-ceasing voices of praise because of the surpassing power and worth of his glory which only belongs to God. And then he says at the end, dominion or authority also belongs to him through Jesus Christ, who we read in Colossians, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything else loses its luster. Everything fades 
like grass, but God and His Word remain forever. They will remain forever, glory-filled above all things. This, you guys, listen, this is what needs to be what drives us towards stewarding the gifts that all come the very grace of His being. That's where they come from. This is why we live in expectant hope. This is why we practice a lifestyle of stewardship and serving. Because at the end of the day, stewardship is not about us. Stewardship is not, first and foremost, listen, about serving others either. If our ultimate goal is only to benefit others, our stewardship will turn into ownership, which turns into self-serving, leading to bitterness and burnout. The only thing to prevent stewardship from turning into ownership is a deep love for others that will steward God's grace for God's glory. Because you know what's strange? And you guys know this. When something isn't yours, you tend to give it the proper weight. When you're taking care of something that you don't own, there's a care and a preciousness that you give to it. So the big idea here, listen, is not to care less about your gifts, but to care rightly about them. Do you guys get that? When God's glory becomes the desire and direction of your heart, you're released. You're released from the burden of ownership to use what is not yours to serve others with what is God's. He gets the glory. You get the joy. Others get the blessing when you relinquish the grace that Christ died for you to receive. Isn't that beautiful? So now you think, oh no, I've not stewarded the grace God has given me. I've not kept a hopeful expectancy. I've not practiced a lifestyle of serving. I'm not glory-minded in all things. Shoot. Maybe that's what you're thinking inside right now. So what happened was, is my wife, after I realized my phone had uh, disappeared forever, uh, my wife got on her phone, which has this app or witchcraft that finds lost phones. Um, so what happens is the app takes us back down 30 to a country road that led to a field that was being plowed by two farmers. So what happens after that is I pull up, I stop, and I'm looking at the two farmers in the field in their tractors, and my five-foot-tall wife um, hops out of the car and runs over to one of the farmers in the tractor who reaches into his pocket and pulls out my phone and hands it to her. To which he said, I was going to give it to my barber because I thought he might know how to work one of these gadgets a little bit better than me. Isn't that crazy? My phone was recovered in the middle of a field by two farmers and a tractor off 30. Ownership leads us to caring either too little or too much about what God has given us. But stewardship, stewardship always leads us back to God, who is the one who holds and redeems our gifts because they're extensions of His grace. Grace that we see modeled in the very life of Jesus. Jesus, who served. Jesus, who spoke, who encouraged, who cared for, who fed others, 
who died. So that we might live by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. How could this change your Christmas season? With the burdens and the responsibilities and the tiredness and the irritableness and the grinchiness and the heartbrokenness that some of you have going into this season? How could your stewardship change the way someone else understands the grace of Christ? Imagine this. A man comes comes into an orphanage at Christmas time and he walks in and he saw all the poor and destitute children who had nothing to speak of. So being moved with compassion, he leaves and he spends everything he has to buy each child a gift they'd always wanted. And then he has all the gifts delivered on Christmas Day. And as the man makes his way to the orphanage on Christmas Day, he pictures the joy on the faces of the children as they no doubt in his mind would be playing happily together, just overwhelmed and overcome by the surprise and delight of the gift. But when he arrives, he walks into the common area and he sees each child sitting alone with their toys, silently guarding them for fear that they would be taken away taking little joy in the gift or in the giver of them. We hear a story like that and we go, what a shame, what a tragedy. But that's what happens when we try to own rather than steward. When God's glory becomes the deep desire of your heart, then gifts are seen for what they truly are. Graces. Stewardship is what happens when you keep a hopeful expectancy for the giver alive in your heart who, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter, by his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Let's give away what we've been given with hopeful expectancy to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we pray that these truths would be made evident in our hearts, not only for this season, but that you would use this season to remind us of the gift that we've been given in Christ that we would open up our shut-up hearts, Lord, that we would use the gifts that you've given us, that we would pray with hopeful expectancy for all the different ways that we can bless our brothers and sisters of our church family and in our community. Lord, we pray that you would change us. We pray that you would draw us into a spirit of stewardship, that we would relinquish ownership to you, and stop being turned and maneuvered and manipulated by the false promise and false security that it offers us. But Lord, we pray that our focus instead would be turned to Christ who gave us all things so that we wouldn't have the burden of ownership, but we could experience the grace of stewardship by extending 
these good gifts to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Lord, grant us this grace today, we pray, and all God's people said, amen.